Welcome to Stuff Central on Cliff Central, your weekly technology podcast. Let's be honest, because I'm not sure of how many of you listen to this at 2 p.m. on Thursday. But I do have incredibly exciting people in the store, store, studio, in the studio. First up, Mike Stopforth, the CEO of Cerebra, a, uh, a very clever digital branding and marketing company. And Mikey himself is a very clever guy who just wrote a very clever book. Thank you, Toby Shapshack, for that uh, very clever intro. <laughs> we also have the uh, CEO, Tony Sinton, and the CIO, that's the Chief Tech, in, uh, Chief Technology Officer, uh, Barry Cuckoo, of a, clump, a very clever company called NetStop that we're going to be speaking to later. Thank you, Toby. Indeed. So, uh, so this is the, uh, the must-listen-to technology podcast in the country, and the reason is that is because we sum up everything that's happened in a nice, easy-to-understand way uh, for you, our listener. And, of course, the biggest news of the week or certainly of the day today is the launch of uh, iOS 8, Apple's new operating system for their iPhone, which um, I have downloaded because jet lag had me up at 3 a.m. this morning. And it was a 1.1 gigabyte file on my phone or a 1.92 gigabyte file via iTunes. And um, I must say from a few hours of using it and not using all of it, it's, it's very slick. It um, looks the same as the last version. It's a very same flat you know, and fancy and skeuomorphic uh, look and feel, but it's quite slick and quite fast. Mikey, you haven't had a chance to download it yet. Semi haven't had a chance. More Semi haven't had a, a concern. <laughs> so, so help me understand, is it a one point, how many gigabyte download on the phone as well? Yeah, 1.1. 1. 1 so even because I only discovered that trick the other day, right? That if you're updating um, from your phone, I know that sounds retarded but i didn't know that so so i would always go to itunes and download it on itunes and then use up all my yeah, no i did the same but it's actually. still still over a gig yeah i was seven phone. was the first one that did it actually so don't feel bad because i also only found out because yeah, that's a useful little trick yeah right? i know like, so if you're going to be updating so something, only do it be, from your phone as opposed to yeah, from itunes like an increment yeah 30 30 gig or 30 meg download as opposed to yes. one gig yeah, yeah absolutely so no i haven't uh toby and and i and i guess some of that is is the fact that I wasn't um, really online this morning. And then some of that might have been that, I guess, kind of like a growing disenchantment with Apple's lack of Apple-ness. I don't know if you feel the same way. But, like, having gone from being a massive Apple fan uh, to now being, I guess, just a little bit disenchanted with the lack of innovation and, and market leadership. But I guess, I, you know, at the same time, you've got to be realistic about your expectations of these businesses. And although they are Apple and they have more disposable income than the universe. Um, <laughs> I, I guess I guess innovation is not necessarily something you can buy, right? Like and 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 I I get I get a little disenchanted with the lack of It's it's interesting that you see it as that because I, I see it slightly differently. I think we've really plateaued in terms of quote unquote innovation because I also don't know if I would use that word. They just you're saying they haven't done anything new, they haven't done anything wow or anything radical. Is, is that a fair... Well, well, you'd sense that, that when you look at releases and hero phones across all of the brands at the moment, yeah. generally these are iterations of each other and not yeah. necessarily uh, step changes, right? So, so maybe, maybe we've got used to accelerated step change and that's why we have such high expectations. But for me, I, I don't know, I, I expect more. I expect more from mm -hmm. a company with, with those brains 
and that bank balance. Oh, no, I'm, I'm, I like that you hold them to a high standard. I mean, I said to someone uh, early in the week, I can't believe that Apple is a follower. I mean, if you look at the iPhone 6, the iOS 8, everything they poo-pooed about Android, yeah. they've now, you know, released. Yeah. And uh, it used to be that they were the ones with all the great new technology and everyone else followed them, but it's just not true anymore. Apple's a little bit like Tiger Woods, right? I mean, like if you look back to 2009, (laughs) um, just the the gap between Tiger Woods and the competition is just remarkable. I mean, you you could not imagine that any other golfer would ever be able to compete. That's right. Uh, And then they both started fucking around. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. I um. I uh, I just love that you bring a golfing analogy. Well, and of course, I do know what you mean. It's my just, comfort zone. Just barely. I'm hanging on by my fingertips to these cultural references. You start talking about strokes and pars and like Pars-y. wood irons and whatever. That's where I'm lost. Maybe but, we uh, should use rugby, Toby. Yeah, no, but I think I, it's a good it's a good point. You know, with that much money, like where is the innovation? Where is the exciting new tech? And to your point, Barry, yeah, you know, I think that Apple made a mistake by poo-pooing it as you say, or rubbishing their competition or saying, mm. who wants a big phone? You know, that, that just makes them look stupid. Yeah, um, and I suppose that was the kind of ethos under Steve Jobs. It wasn't just good enough to say we were the best. Steve Jobs had a way of saying, we're the best and fuck you. Yeah, um, exactly. So, so, yeah, perhaps. I mean, there was, a, there was a thing doing the rounds with Duncan McLeod was very, very, was showing me on Facebook about how, you know, dear iPhone 6 users, welcome to 2012. You know, all the same features of the iPhone 6, the 4.7-inch screen, the NFC payments, the 720 resolution, 720p, blah, blah, blah. You could get in a Nexus 4 two years ago. And, and yes, it's true. It's, but, it, but I suppose it's the nature of the world, isn't it? Like everyone copied Apple and Apple's now copying back. Yeah, but Apple didn't copy anyone. They, exactly. instead of being better then, they were different then, right? So that's, that's the fundamental right. difference. So, so, so for me, um, being able to redefine an industry, redefine a device category, redefine um, software comes from a, a dramatic departure from the current path as opposed to iterative improvements, right? Um, you know, to me it feels like Tim Cook is, is playing it safe because safe means, you know, continued revenue. Yeah. Whereas Steve Jobs were far more willing to uh, do something radical. Yeah, he was a real risk taker. Completely. I mean, Steve, Steve, uh, Tim Cook's a... a you know, what did someone dismiss him as? The, the operations guy. You know, he's a supply chain guy. That's what they called him. You know, yeah, right. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what makes a modern business like Apple work effective supply chain. But perhaps so. Yeah, there's a, yeah. a very interesting cover story in, in Business Week, Bloomberg Business Week. I started reading the first few paragraphs and apparently, um, it's a much calmer place. No one's nervous about Steve Jobs' maniacal changes of mood and, you know, furious outbursts, um, and apparently they left his office as it was. So I haven't had a chance to look at it. Apparently, um, uh, Tim Cook takes a bit of a subtle dig at Google, or not so subtle. Um, no, not and, very subtle. No, not very subtle. I mean, he's already said a couple of uh, harsh things. But I, um, yeah, I, I suppose I'm just more pragmatic in terms of of, of my expectations of what Apple will do. Mike, that your your what you're saying about nothing innovative or brand new. Do you do you Extend that to the Apple Watch, or do you? I mean, it is a it is a category that other people are making, and Apple has certainly. I mean, touchscreens were popular. All the technology in the in the iPhone when it launched in two thousand and seven was existing, but they've taken this device, and now suddenly everybody wants a smart oh, device. I think it's an exquisitely pretty version of what everybody else was doing, and I do like the multiple color options. Yeah, am I being facetious enough? 
I'm not mm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, <laughs> you could, you could add a bit of sarcasm. Like I had, I had zero desire or intrigue around that announcement. I wasn't, I wasn't keen to watch. I wasn't keen to engage. I wasn't keen to rush out and line up in New York, the, the Apple store in my tent to, to get hold of a smartwatch, you know? Um, A, I think the device category hasn't proven itself yet. So it's an extension of my phone. I no, could alternatively I, I, I just realized that if you want like a new product or your friends want a new product for you, they get me to stand in the queue. In Austin, Texas. I just remember Hypothetically, that. Hypothetically, but, but let's not generalize because I've never done that. <laughs> Other friends. But, but, but good friends of com- yours. Common friends, maybe, Actually, but not me. I mean, admittedly, it was like several days after the iPad launch. <clears throat> Toby, it's a, it's a poor device, or iPad man. Too, it, like, I mean, there's zero that's interesting about it. Yeah. Like, I can maybe answer my phone on my freaking watch. Like, that, I can't no, imagine I, anything more yeah. boring what's, than What's that. more interesting for me is the new Samsung Gear that can actually operate without a phone. Yeah, the one that runs the Tyson operating system. Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, that's, that's interesting. If you go for your run, you don't have to carry your phone with you. Yeah. And you can still record everything and you can even, you know, receive calls. Well, as a friend of mine told me yesterday, and I, you know, I wouldn't, I would, I'll keep her name confidentially, obviously, Tracy Cohen. Um, she runs with her smartphone in case they like need to call Uber. You know, she got injured. <laughs> that's perfect. It's just she called Uber. Like, I think that's that, great. That would, that would be hilarious if I'd never done that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it would just, I like suddenly she said that and I thought, oh my God, those thousands of times guy, when I went back when I did run. Guy picked me up with the sweaty patches and he's like, this happens quite a lot. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, welcome to the club. Oh, that's great. I ran too. down the hill. I can't get up the hill. Yeah, uh, you know, we gave them, we've gave them, uh, Uber our, in our gadget of the year awards last year. We gave them essential app of the year. And I've, I've got the, the, the plaque in my car that I've got to give to the local guys. And Still. I, and I, yeah, someone, someone else didn't do it. So you they should gave call it, Uber. They gave it to me. Yes. I'm going to call Uber and have lunch. I, I'm such a fan. I can't tell you how. I, I used to dread taking taxis. Yeah. Like you always had to schmuckle with the taxi driver who's trying to rip you off or not rip you off. Or, you know, you like get into the cab drunk and I, he doesn't want to start there. And like every single cab driver was trying to schmuckle. And I didn't want that. You know, it was just a pain in the ass. They were unreliable. They didn't pitch up. You know, uh, Goodfellas when it started was great. By the end it was appalling. You know, like we had to jumpstart One Oak's car one night. It's one of those astonishingly rare examples of the technology not getting in the way of the service. And that's just so, that's so, totally. so rare. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's financial services, but, but it's so rare that, that the technology actually genuinely augments the service. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I must tell you that when I first used it in San Francisco last year, and I used it again now when I was there last week, it, it's just, oh, it's such a pleasure. Really, just such a pleasure. Also free water, huh? Yeah, oh, we love that. No, how much you love free water? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm fine, Northern Suburbs. Ah, free water. <laughs> anyway, now we are, we have discussed enough news of the week, but what, what I've asked Mike to come in actually is because, um, he has written a very clever book about branding in this digital age. I know it's clever because he's clever. I haven't read it myself yet. Um, but in case you don't know who he is, he's a, he's a, he's like a really clever guy who worked really hard for a decade or so or more and suddenly got bought by a very big company called WPP. But what Mike was doing for a long time before um, anyone else was doing was, was a kind of like Web, two, Web 2.0 stuff, you know, the, the kind of understanding of digital marketing in this digital age. So he merged with another company, Emerging Media, who did traditional PR. And I think the 
I think that you know the kind of list of clients. I don't remember. I don't remember all of them. I know Vodacom's one. I don't remember all of them. But is is a is a like a, a a hallmark of how it is. And the other thing I know is that everybody who works for you, Mike, or certainly everyone who tells me, really loves it, which is a very good sign. Okay. So you, the book. Um, tell us how the book came about. Yeah. So I, I get. So one of the byproducts of having a social media focused business is that a lot of your work revolves around um, publishing ideas or thought leadership and specifically about how this impacts companies and customers and employees by extension. So we, we've written quite a lot of material over the last couple of years and that will take the form of, of very badly written blog posts and, and presentations that we'll deliver to clients or workshops or whatever it may be. And um, we got to the point where we realized that, that there was kind of a consolidated um, story behind all of that yeah, thinking yeah. and it made sense to package it into one one single volume, I guess, and to call this a volume is very ambitious because it's quite little and has lots of pictures. So not a volume, an extended pamphlet, basically. But um, the the well, uh, uh, you might just be commenting on book writing in this in this age anyway. Yeah, you know, so, 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 so the books book starts with, with the sentence, "Who has time to read a book?" <laughs> so there's more than 140 characters <laughs> for that. So yeah, no, slightly more than 140 characters. <laughs> Definitely not more than 140 pages, though. But but Toby, so so the, I like the, that though. I mean, really, you know, there's no formula in this world for how my, long of things. And if it's shorter and to the point, well uh, done. My, my experience of a lot of business books today is that they stem from a good idea. Um, yeah. th- that good idea is formulized into a, a hypothesis that's argued in the first two chapters. You buy into it and then you have 11 chapters of case studies afterwards where the guy just yeah. kind of repeats himself. So yeah. I mean, that, obviously that's a huge generalization. But not, not entirely inaccurate. I'll yeah, agree with but, you. But, but so, so we felt like this would be more useful to people if it was something that they could read on a flight from, as Andy Rice was saying last night, on a flight from Joburg to Cape Town or, yeah. um, and, and something that can be passed on, right? So if you read it and you find it useful, Hopefully you'd hand it to somebody else, and, and I guess in that way it becomes a little bit of a business card. But um, so fundamentally, the book tries to answer the question um, uh, around, I guess, the pain that many of our clients feel, and our clients are generally large corporations that are fairly complex and 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 have the considerations of many people, including their customers and shareholders and partners and stakeholders, to consider of how to navigate the, the opportunities and challenges of this social era of business right and and instead of focusing on the technologies because i guess reams and reams are written about the the technology behind facebook or twitter or youtube or whatever it may be not a hell of a lot is written about how those platforms have changed the way that people connect with each other so what are the principles of social engagement um and so when we start talking about those things we talk about things like radical trust and authenticity and openness and transparency and and i guess those are values and principles that are (laughs) in many instances, fundamentally and diametrically opposed to the principles that would govern the traditional industrial age corporation. Those, oh, yeah, they, they are traditional but, industrial and, and, age and, corporation. And, and very efficiently so, though. I mean, they're juggernauts of commercial success, which is a great thing. But, um, but they are governed by, I guess, they, they're designed to make a profit at the expense of their people and of their customers. Yeah. And, and that is, that's Henry Ford's mantra, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the business model that he, that he constructed. And then we have this new world where customers are more connected and informed and have more options than ever before, also more educated. Um, and, and when disenchanted customers and frustrated employees uh, want to express themselves, they generally publish those thoughts online. On social media. And yeah. so for, for the average company, their, their reputation is a, is a 
indexed searchable archive of their screw ups uh, yeah. on on Twitter and Facebook. So in the, in the, in the midst of all of that, um, we're trying to help companies understand how to change from the inside out, as opposed to hiring an agency to fix them. Yeah, yeah that's a good summation, really, of the state of the world right now. That was pretty good. I told you. It was thanks, thanks, Tobes. I, I try my best. I do it a couple of times. So and I you had me a juggernaut. I mean, no, yeah. But it, but it's true, you know. I mean, I, I look at I, and I feel sometimes for for these big brands, like people, you know, the thing about like social media is is what did someone say once? It's like thinking out loud, and sometimes it's not even thinking. And and I look at I look at some of those comments and they're just like angry, pissed off. Sometimes they sometimes they're useful feedback for a company. A lot of times they're just like yeah, I'd say ninety percent of the time it's not. So so I guess if you look at like so we don't right now have the hindsight or the perspective to fully appreciate the impact of what's happened over the last sort of ten years or so on business or on society. But if we narrow it down to its lowest common denominator, what's changed is that people like you and me. Well, no, you not you. People like me because you were always a you were always a publisher. You were always one of the media elite. You were always a gatekeeper of influence. But ordinary randoms like me from Benoni, we didn't know how to publish or couldn't publish. Or you needed to know a webmaster. Remember those people? Mm. A webmaster mm. or a journalist. Oh, to have <laughs> Barry was a webmaster. <laughs> Don't hold it against me. No, not at all. Um, won't be holding anything against you, Barry. <laughs> um, and uh, and so, so this world of blogs and podcasts and RSS and wikis, this suddenly offers the random individual an opportunity to publish and in the mm. midst of that all the rules change right because mm. in the mm. past when you wanted to publish you were given guidelines you were taught about objectivity well, I, yeah i mean i'd say i say sure i could publish an article but i could definitely couldn't publish an article about an insurance company spamming me with sms's and other things and emails and you know I, I, that kind of personal communication is never allowed in the traditional journalism sense so so actually, it's quite useful for me. I mean, the, and the example of this this ongoing unsolicited spam. I tweeted one tweet, and they responded and said, "Terribly sorry, we'll stop doing it." You know, it's it's become Twitter in many ways has become the world's complaining engine. Yeah. But I think it's like when uh, in the previous elections, when one of the parties was spamming everyone, and you mean the DA? Yeah, there was such a great outcry that you know within. Hours, there was everyone knew about it. And now, yeah. I don't know if it maybe played into their hands because everyone else was now talking about it. But it's interesting. But before, what could you do? I mean, that's rough, right? And there's big questions as to whether or not it actually has any material impact on companies. We can have a debate about that separately. But but regardless, I think what's interesting is this whole question of credibility, right? So a company would respond to you, Toby, because you're perceived as credible because of influence and because of the way you communicate online, mostly. Um, <laughs> love you, Toby. Mostly, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> But 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 if somebody just complains all the time, the company probably wouldn't consider them a key role player in that yeah. conversation. But similarly, I think consumers who are faced with more more options or more um, connections than ever before, and also have a radically diminishing sense of trust for marketing departments or for corporations, are starting to judge the credibility of an organization based purely on what it delivers as opposed to what it says. So. You know, there's that fundamental human truth that the, your credibility is determined by the gap between what you say and what you do, right? And yeah. and I think more and more we're looking at companies and going, saying that you're the most innovative bank or saying that you're here for me or saying that you care or saying that you'll support me and then not doing that is worse than not saying anything at all. Exactly. And that disenchantment, both in the hands of employees and in the hearts of customers, is is inevitably landing up. There's this kind of big, ugly spotlight being shone on it in, in social. 
And uh, I suppose in social media, you know, if you don't respond, that's as bad as, as anything else. You know, most people, most people want to prevent. And if you go, I acknowledge, I heard you, you know, that's, an, that's a way of, of like, that's more than anything else. They just want an acknowledgement. Could, is that could true? be, but I think it, in some instances it's actually better not to respond, especially if it is just Depending, a mob kind of. I mean, if they're know. like David Bullard kind of people, you, you, you know, you can't engage the, 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 the trolls. You just can't. As a, as a random example, yes. Yeah. I, uh, the only person I've ever blocked on Twitter. Well, you speak about trolling. So there's an account that, uh, I think it's talk shite radio or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, so, so I had a couple of quite negative tweets from it the other day and, and somebody DM'd me and said, I see that, I see that David Bullard is having a go at you. I don't know David Bullard. I mean, yeah. I'm sure he's a nice man. Maybe not. I don't know. But anyway, so, so I was like, okay, cool. Um, so I, I started to reply to the trolls messages by saying, Hey, David, thanks. Or like, Shot yeah. for the feedback, David. Um, and, and then eventually, I think three or four days later, he replied or the account replied and said, I'm not Bullard. Like, I don't know why everybody keeps thinking I'm Bullard. And I wrote back and said, I, I didn't say Bullard. <laughs> I said David. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, uh, smarter people than, than I, certainly not, I not you, you guys. No, they, they've checked, they've checked all these, they're called sock accounts or puppet accounts. Mm. And they've gone and checked to see where they come from. They will come from the same computer, which happens course, to be yeah. the same as his. Anyway, yeah. be that as it may, this is a, this is a point in case, you know, you have some a negative, disruptive person with a vendetta, be they against a brand or a person. And how do you deal with them? How do you deal with the trolls on the internet? Given that you said like 90% is just people ranting. Yeah. Look, okay. So, so I mean, there's people ranting and then there's trolls, right? So, so, yeah. and I think we need to differentiate between the trolls you don't deal with. Um, I don't know if it makes sense in any way, shape, or form to engage with somebody who's irrational and uh, motivated. I mean, you had, you had me at "Hello, David," <laughs> or "Thanks, David." But, uh, but yeah, no, so I don't. I don't know that that's even worth considering. But when people do complain about brands online, there's I guess there's only two possible outcomes, right? So the one possible outcome is that that person is wrong. They've made a mistake. They discovered a billion error on their account, but they didn't realize that they used data out of bundle, and so now they're they're stressed and and. A couple of things will happen in that instance. Hopefully, you'll be able to resolve it with that person, or ideally, you'll have a nice engaged community, and they'll self-regulate, mm. and maybe they'll suggest to the person, "Have you looked at this, or have you tried this?" And um, or even um, that person will realize that they were wrong and go, "I'm a tard, and I'm sorry, and uh, I, you know, I apologize for for that mistake." The other alternative is that the company has been crap. Like that's the only mm. other thing. Either mm. the person was wrong, or you're crap. Mm. Person is wrong, or you're crap. Mm. Surely, if you're crap, you'd want to know, right? Like, surely, yeah. if you've made a mistake, it's or good, the, useful, um, it's good feedback. If that, you have, that requires a degree of humility and openness and vulnerability that that I think is is very, very rare in the modern business world. And that again is that industrial age legacy of impenetrable perfection and. And it, it's it's a sorry, but right. it's so much different than before. We your only recourse was to phone the hotline. Yeah. And nothing happens. Yeah. You know, you can phone them and you can rant and, and that's it. Yeah. Whereas now it's almost like publicly humiliating or calling them out in, in public, which is, I don't do you know. think, do you think there's the corollary attitude that if people are aware that if they cry wolf and complain all the time, their personal reputation suffers or don't Absolutely. they care? So that's what I was saying earlier on, right? No, you were. And I think there is, there's almost a need for conscientious consumerism, right? So I think there's a need for people to grow up a little bit and go, I have, <laughs> the, the Uncle Ben thing, right? With great power comes great responsibility. So grow up and acknowledge that you do have the power of a publisher 
and that that is significant and that you can do damage. And if you, if you utilize that responsibly, you'll get a very mature, very meaningful response out of that, that business partner or that, that provider. If you're going to act like a, like a, a child, you're going to be mm. treated like a child. Mm. Um, I mean, I, we, we firmly believe that companies need to actually be a little bit more bold about their engagements with clients, be a little bit more prescriptive about what they will entertain and what they won't. So we encourage our clients to develop like a, housekeeping rules for their sites just yeah. to prevent people from going absolutely absolutely ridiculously I think I think you used the word responsible there and I suppose that sums it up I mean there's a there's a thing about journalism that I know that that you don't see coming what traditional print journalism or traditional newspaper journalism or traditional reporting publishing industry where you get taught a sense of accountability and responsibility that you know, people from small publications or bloggers tend not to understand, you know. So, so it's, that's the problem, you know. People don't understand the responsibility with saying, if you, if you say so and so is useless, you, you've got to get, you, you know, you, you don't get that that's a comment about yourself as much as it is about the company you're commenting on. Which is something that very few people consider yeah. as individuals publishing in the space. It's like giving yeah. people a loaded gun and no training, you know. <laughs> exactly, you know, in a, a small estate in Pretoria. Um, the, uh, I suppose it's, what's that phrase? The, uh, the audience formerly known, the community formerly known as your audience. You know, your brand is in the hands of, of, of a bunch of drunk tweeters. You well, know, I, I, I always think we've got to be careful, Toby, because that's quite sensational. And I know this is a radio show. So sensationalist. Maybe I be sensational, Are you alleging a journalist is sensationalist? I'm, I'm you know, declaring. Just I wrote I'm not alleging. The, just because I wrote for the Sunday Times for a few years. You only I allege mean. if you have, if you, if you have suspicions. Um, so, <laughs> so Tobes, um, <laughs> I think that, I think that the big shift is that you, you, you know, our brand is no longer what we prescribe via, you know, whether it's traditional marketing or messaging to, to, to customers. Our brand is, is what our customers are telling their friends it is, right? And I, and I don't think that's because consumers are, are unhappy about advertising or because they don't care about advertising. I think if advertising is contextual and meaningful and creative and smart, yeah, I love it. Has I role. absolutely it love it. Absolutely. Does. But that's also very rare, right? So there's, there's, there are thousands, millions of brands vying for your and my attention on a daily basis via spammy SMSs or emails or billboards or radio ads or TV ads. And your capacity, your bandwidth, your attention span for that messaging is, is diminished. And I think exactly. in, increasingly and disproportionately, uh, disproportionately diminished because we are being trained not to concentrate, right? So, so in that world, when, when brands cannot differentiate on their products because there's just too much coming in and there are too many options and it's so easy to copy that product or on their price because they're all undercutting each other and racing to the bottom. Um, or even on their geographical positioning, which means virtually nothing. You were talking about Alibaba earlier on, you know, being a quintessential example of online commerce. And I mean, that's fundamentally changed whether or not geographical position is in any way, shape or form relevant to, to the modern cl- uh, customer. With all of that, all that companies have got left is their, their personality. That's yeah, it. Yeah. And, and like, and, that and their relationship with their consumer, you know, at the end of the day. Well, that is their personality. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the end of the day, why would I trust someone? Cause I have a relationship sure. with them. Why will I use their service? Cause I trust them. You know, the old rules of, of behavior actually are still true. You know, you've got to trust and the brand. And I guess that comes back with. to, you know, what we were talking about earlier about Apple, you know, is their, their personality is so huge and great that people will still buy their, their products, even though it's not, you know, innovative and, and all of that it's still that's what it's about 
Yeah. yeah. We yeah. must be careful though, because I mean, often decisions are made using brands like Apple as a benchmark. Apple's not a brand. Apple's a religion, right? So, so <laughs> it's, it's not, I, I don't know if it's useful to use Apple as the benchmark, <laughs> yeah. but for, you know, cause I'll often get a, uh, you know, I'll often get, uh, let me try and think of a practical example here. So I'll get a financial services client that says to me, we want to have 4 million likes on our Facebook fan page, like Axe deodorant, right? And I'm like, yeah, but then put, pictures of naked women on your Facebook fan page and you'll get 4 million likes. But it's just, it's not helpful to compare a financial services yeah. brand with a deodorant yeah. brand. And, 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 and you know, the, the, the continuous mistake that I think many clients, many companies and many individuals make is that they naturally assume that having that Facebook page or that Twitter account or whatever it may be inherently makes them digitally competent. It makes yeah. them social and how you use it makes you social. Um, well, edu- educating your, educating your, your, Customers is is important, which is why they should all buy brand Skizo, <laughs> the clever new book from clever Mike Stopforth.
And you are listening to Stuff Central on Cliff Central, your weekly dose of technology, news and views simplified by very smart people. Not me, obviously, but the very smart people I invite into the studio, including uh, the guys from NetStock, Tony Sinton, the CEO, and Barry Cookook, the CIO, or the CTO, the Chief Technology Officer. And That's NetStock right. is the best little company you've never heard of, netstock.co. Nothing else, just .co. And what you guys do is uh, inventory management, which of course is, or inventory optimization, which is about as, as dull as, uh, you know, talking about advances in hard drives. Um, but what is not dull is that you have 300 customers on four continents within 10 countries, 2,500 users, and you are managing, I love this, 10 billion rand or more in inventory and that your largest customer has a billion rand of, of stock that you're optimizing for them. So tell us a little bit about it. How did it come about, and, uh, and how did you make, I mean, after Tim Cook, you, Tim, Tim Cook, Cook. <laughs> Freudian. <laughs> Tim Cook, <laughs> you guys have seemed to make uh, uh, inventory or supply chain management interesting. Thanks, Toby. The, the real issue is that for many years we were involved in inventory management, inventory optimization, and teaching people how to do it and and selling technology that supported doing that. And, you know, with the creation of the cloud technology, the ability to do things so differently uh, has made the difference. It's for the average user, the small business, made it affordable in a way that you couldn't have contemplated years gone by. And it's about doing that that's really made the difference and a lot of fun. So, and it's given us the ability to expand and grow globally without having to have offices and do all those drudgery things that I mean it's part of the part of the joys of the cloud right that you can store you can store your system in the cloud you don't need physical servers am yeah, I right exactly and, and so can your customers exactly you know what we did in our previous lives at, a, at another company where we did exactly this kind of software is we wrote big large systems which we then sold to customers for you know a million rand or more and they had to buy 10 new servers and new operating system licenses and train people for five-day courses and all this sort of stuff. And then they got some return on investment. But when we started in about 2010, we looked at ourselves and we said, you know what, there's a huge amount of small and medium companies who need exactly the same service. They also have inventory, so they might not have a billion rand, but they might have, you know, 200,000 rands with inventory, but they have the same problems, you know, of stocking out or too much in this and that, but they can't afford a million rand piece of software. So how do, how can we help them? And that's when we started with this this whole cloud uh, innovation, which means that customers can sign up. They they not charge the million rand upfront. Instead, they're getting a small monthly fee that they they pay us, and no long term contracts. They don't have to buy service. They don't have to buy software. They don't have to you know upgrade the OS, any of that stuff, and they just get the benefits. Hang on, that's that's called. Service software as a service. That's correct. On demand. <laughs> we, we live in that world. <laughs> Without commitment, which yeah. is, I think, a big thing as well. Today, you can't go and ask people to sign up for a year. Yeah. You know, it's, it's about offering them something that they can test, they can feel it. They can, if it works for them, use it. If it doesn't, stop. Yeah. I think that's what cloud solutions need to offer. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's quite, I mean, I think your business is quite remarkable in, in, in the kind of scale and breadth of what you can do. But what's, I suppose what uh, would be terrifying for a traditional businessman is that uh, how do you revenue? How do you how do you project what your revenue is going to be? How do you, as a small company, 
manage your business process, your business income. You know, that that is a, a challenge, especially when you start up, because you don't know how long that runway is going to be. How long is it going to be before you actually break even? Um, especially if you charge a small monthly fee, it means that you have to add enough customers to, to get to that point. You know, as Jeff Bezos famously said, you have to get big fast um, and worry about profits yeah. later. Yeah. And that's exactly, you know, the kind of thing that you have to do, which I think is a little bit more difficult in a B2B environment. Uh, which we operate in than, than business to, to customer, but the same, the same stuff applies. You know, you have to get uh, the volume in order to project. But once you have the volume, it's much easier to project you, your, your turnover for the next year because you know who your customers are. You know what's going to be interesting, Toby, is to see yeah. how the world sort of progresses in the space of cloud and server-based solutions because there's – Still a lot of big offerings out there with uh, server-based offerings that are costing a huge amount of money that people are still buying. And I sort of wonder why that, that is happening to the extent maybe, maybe it isn't happening to the extent. I mean, certainly the, the companies that we're coming across, we tend to, tend to win because we're just so affordable, offering the same type of functionality. But, you know, when you look at this uh, direction of building big software, it seems insane today. That yeah. people aren't just all gravitating towards cloud. Yeah, I mean, it does make. I mean, I, I have slowly inched my way into the cloud in in no small part because the services have just become so much cheaper. You know, I mean, yeah. we run the whole of Stuff Magazine using Dropbox just because. Yeah. You know, we don't. We you know, I mean, if I think about us as a small business, we would have to have a file server. We would have to have a hosted mail client. Yeah. We'd have to either post it ourselves or host it somewhere else. I mean, now with Google Docs or Google Apps, you can host your mail for free. You can share documents, Dropbox, Dropbox. And, and, how, would, and how difficult was it to get to use Dropbox? Oh, nothing. It's, it's, yeah. Isn't in, that the point? In, and that's exactly what you want, you know. Yeah. And, 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 you know, from, our, from what I've seen of your business, you do that. You make it like, Has you know, to be easy, you know simple. As, as, as easy for people like Aki Anastasia to use. <laughs> that's right. That's I, right. I, I, I mean, often think that the… The guy that we need to get past in order to, to win the business is the traditional IT manager at, at, at companies. You know, that I get the idea that they're sitting in a bit of an ivory tower. They now know that they, this is their network, these are their Windows servers, and, you know, no one's going to get in or out, and, and this cloud thing is a, it's a threat to them. Um, but sooner or later, these guys will have to realize that cloud is the way everything's going. Yeah. I, I don't even think we even have to discuss that. You know, that's, a, really. that's an interesting question. Do you really believe that's true? It's obviously what we want to believe. But, you know, when you look at out there, and sometimes and I travel around the world quite a bit, is to actually see how people react to a cloud offering. But what I can tell you is when we started in really 2011, hey, Barry, when we started yeah. going to conferences, we were like at one stage the only people with a tablet, the only people talking cloud. Yeah. Now you go, and it's a given. We don't have Everywhere. to justify it. We don't have to really explain it. So I think the adoption rate is accelerating. Yeah, it's definitely there. I think we live in the age. You know, last year Microsoft said, oh, sorry, Gartner was Gartner. Gartner said, one of the big research houses said, Microsoft shipped only 14% of devices that connected to the world, which means a, a laptop or a desktop or, a you know, an Android, I mean, a, a Windows phone or, a you know, God forbid anyone uses one of those surfaces. Um, those, you know, but the the new ones are not bad. We we can't be too dismissive. But the um, the uh, 
yeah, I mean, they, 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 that, that paradigm is totally shifting. I don't think we have to even talk about people mm-hmm. not understanding how to do something in a browser. But re- really what you are doing is, is um, just tell us a little bit about the process. I mean, our inventory is not terribly exciting, but what is it that you do that makes it so efficient, makes it so worthwhile? I mean, I, if you, you look at a small save, business, you, you, can, you said once uh, on, on, on Tech Busters you can save 10%. I mean, that's yeah. a can be huge, huge saving. You know, if you look at a small business, all of them struggle with stockouts, losing sales from not having the right products and having too much money tied up in inventory. Now, that's a challenging thing to deal with. And just about any person you stop in the street who sells and has inventory will say, yes, I have that problem. So it's hardly asking something new. The question really is, how do you solve that? And, of course, technology can do that because it can be very cleverly applied but providing it is simply and easily applied and given to the user in a way like you can use Dropbox, that you can just adopt it, you use it, um, you get to understand it. It's just anywhere, anytime, and that makes a huge difference. You're no longer constrained. And you think of small business people today, they have to be more productive. They have to be more efficient. The competition, as we were saying earlier, is getting more and more aggressive. So how do you sweat your inventory? How do you really make things perform, and yet not spend all your time and days doing it. You know, there's one client that we have that comes to mind. He used to spend his weekends, just about every weekend, replenishing and planning his, his, his orders um, so that he could actually keep his business running. He now does it in half an hour. Wow. You know, that's, that is the difference, and he's doubled his business. So those are the issues that really become uh, – very important to the small business. You know, if you, th- if you think about a small business, um, uh, if they don't have the, the stock available when the customer comes to, to buy that stock or order the stock, they're going to lose the sale nine times out of ten. Yeah. But not only that, is the customer might go and buy everything in the basket from the competitor. And sometimes even the worst thing happens, and they, so they go to the competitor, they like the competitor, and now the, the business has lost the customer for life all because they didn't have one piece of uh, inventory in the right place in the right time. Yeah. So if we can reduce that, not only will we you know, reduce your inventory level, but we will also make your sales and your, and your future growth yeah, yeah. so much bigger. Yeah, and we do live in an instant world. You exactly. Know? I mean, I, uh, I had one of the best e-commerce experiences of my life. I, at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, I ordered something from Dion Wired's website. And it was delivered by two o'clock the next day. I mean, that wow. is amazing. A halo experience. I mean, it's Incredible. like if I ever buy anything online again, who am I going to go to? Exactly. You know, I mean, it's an un- unbeatable brand experience. So I see, you know, if you if you can get that right for your customer, yeah. hallelujah. Yeah. Can you imagine just as a completely off the wall sort of idea, if you can connect really hundreds of companies in the same industry yeah. through the cloud? Yeah. And identify what is surplus inventory. That would be very handy. Guys in Nigeria could be finding stuff that they need for a quarter of the price and a quarter of the cost of getting it there just because they're connected. Yeah. The world, well, is, the world is moving there. It, it will get there. Well, that's, uh, that's the way things are going. Anyway, that has been a very interesting insight into netstock.co. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Tony. Thank, Thank you, Toby. Toby. And uh, as we head towards the end of the show, it is a traditional for us to uh, talk about our pick or our pick on of the week. So because you poor bastards are stuck in the studio with me for another 10 minutes, what is your uh, pick of the week, young Barry? Um, I think this Alibaba thing is really big. 
Yeah. Um, and the way that they have just moved into Amazon.com's territory um, and, and disrupting. And disrupt, disrupting the disruptor. I think that's. Uh, I, I heard this morning, and I, and I mentioned. It, I think that they did something like two hundred million parcels in one day. I mean, I, can you imagine that number? It's yeah, just it's, extraordinary. Yeah, it really is very significant. I mean, they 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 really have uh, reinvented the the kind of marketplace model, which never really worked in in the yeah. West. They've reinvented the marketplace model. They've invented the B2B model. I mean, we all thought they were just a B2B business. They've got their equivalent. They've taken eBay and copied many pieces, let's mm. be honest. Yeah, they've got a payment mechanism. They've got a fulfillment mechanism. They've, 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 and they've just got sheer scale. And that's, and that's exactly what should scare um, Mr. Bezos, is the scale that these oaks are coming at them. It's just a, Absolutely, yeah. They really are something. Well… And uh, and what would you say your pick of the week is? You know, Tony? The pick of the week is the thing that's on TV the whole time and driving everyone nuts is this uh, Scottish English thing. Which, you know, which way would you vote? And it seems to me to be an extraordinary waste of money and time. Um, God only knows what the answer will be, but we're going to find out pretty soon. Should, should I have said it's your tech pick on the week? But like, <laughs> like, just go for it because. <laughs> well, the tech week. Let, let's just put it into tech perspective. If you look at the image of England and Scotland, it looks like a rabbit. And if you take Scotland off, you're taking the head of the rabbit off. So the question is, do you really want to take the head of the rabbit off? Well, that's the question, uh, those hunters out there. Um, I mean, interesting interesting discussions about the change of, will the flag have to change? You know, will the currency change? Will the currency change? What will it mean for Scotland? Can you imagine you know? the legal uh, and the U- lawyers are going to go mad. It can't be called the United Kingdom Every anymore. Country. You know, yeah, really, um, really quite a significant thing. Thanks for that, Tony. Um, well, very nice tech not, choice. Not really techy, but <laughs> but, uh, but still very current. And I, th- my pick of the week is the new Amazon Kindles announced. Uh, Tell us about it. Oh man, they are they lighter, are lighter, smaller, brighter. Yeah, lighter, smaller, brighter. You know, I'm a big reader. I truly, I'm a. You know, I just think the it's Kindle is, is the Kindle is revolutionised. Well, they're they're five new products. This is the, wow. the kind of biggest array I've seen. The bottom end Kindle, the very small one, is 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 um, uh, hundred dollars. It's seventy eight dollars. I just have to wow. check that it's uh, it's got a touch screen now. The high end Kindle is now called the Kindle Voyage, not the paper white, and it's it's just it's got Gorilla Glass. It's got great resolution. It's mm-hmm. it's really tough. Uh, there's a great video of 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 a handbag being held open with hand with one of the the the, the bottom end Kindles. The the um, the Kindle Fire HD is now in a seven inch and then a six inch size, and they've got one of these in brightly colored, you know, blue and pink and yellow colored backs. Uh, they've got one of these in this handbag rolling around with a brush and a whole bunch of other things, just showing you how tough, how it, tough is. it is. There's a kids' edition of the Fire HD. So the, the Fire HD is, is $100. Um, I'm not sure if these include uh, those specials that Amazon includes. Let me just have a quick look. The Fire HD for kids. I don't know why that costs $150, but it's got a tough kind of screen thing around it. And then there's the Fire HD X 8.9. I heard the kids one, they give a lifetime or two-year guarantee that if it breaks, they'll replace it. No questions asked. Are you serious? Well, you'd have to, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, Toby, my daughter's got a Kindle, and it is one of the best things yeah. that I've yeah. ever you know, even thought of giving her. She loves reading, and yeah. just to have so many books on one little device yeah. that weighs, I don't know, 200 grand or whatever. It's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. 
I'm, Unnatural I'm a, attachment to Kindles. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a big believer. Yeah, I'm me just too. a big believer. I'm a, I use my Kindle. I've got the Paperwhite, I think the second or third edition. I think it's really fantastic. Yeah. This new Voyage, oh, you know. Agreed. It's a $200. So you're sitting up there in one. first class and reading. Yeah, Kindle. okay. See, this has got special offers. You know, it's a, it's a deceptive way, Amazon. So it's actually $20, $19 more. Uh, if you take it with the special offers or without. So, um, uh, Wi-Fi. Okay, so both of them, the, the Kindle Voyage without the special offers is, is like $290. Nonetheless, it's still a beautiful looking device and I, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of reading and how to yeah. use it. So there you have it. That's been this week's you, uh, Stuff Central. Thank you, Tony, and thank you, Barry. Thank you, Toby. Uh, and thank you for, you know, Scotland. Oh, hi. <laughs> you know, I wonder, I wonder what William Wallace would think now. Yep. You'd be proud. How many people remember his name is William Wallace and don't think it's, uh, um, what's the actor's name? The anti-Semite, Mel Gibson. Yeah. Anyway. Aussie anti-Semite. Aussie anti-Semite. <laughs> You've been listening to Stuff on Cliff Central. That's Stuff Central, we call it. And uh, thanks for listening. We will be back next week with even more clever and interesting people. Stay well. Saw them dancing in your eyes like shadows in the night. Don't be rewards around the stars. We were running in the haze. I remember every shade in my veins and they shot up sparks.